And, and this morning, I want us to talk about the gospel today. We should talk about the gospel every time we gather as the church, but today I want to remind us of the important message that we're gathered here around, what our kids are going to be getting baptized in to declare that they believe today. That precious message that has changed the world, changed our lives. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. Anybody being saved in this place this morning? I love He's talking to church people. He's talking to church people. He said, hey, you're being saved. That's why sometimes church people ain't so saved because <laughs> they're still in the process of being saved. I love that. And it says you're being saved. As you receive the gospel, you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died in for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was raised in our third day, I'm sorry, in accordance with, that he was buried in our third day, he was raised in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And that message, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose, Christ appeared, is why we are in this place today. If that's not true, later in that chapter, Paul will say, there's no point in being here. If that's true, then you're in the wrong place. You should be, you should be sleeping right now, enjoying a, a day off or going golfing or going fishing or doing something. But if that message is true, it makes all the difference in the world. It changes everything about us from the inside to the outside. And I wanna talk about that today, this weekend at Waters Church. Is that okay? Yeah. Amen. I didn't need you to say yes, but I'm gonna do it anyway. It's nice to hear you say it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to gather in this place to hear you, to receive your word. I pray the Holy Spirit speak through me, speak to all of us, change us, transform us, renew us, remind us, challenge us, conform us to the image of Jesus. Help us to see him, him and him only. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said... Amen, amen. High five your neighbor and tell him that's what it's like to get to church on time. There you go. <laughs> Good morning. I want to talk to you today on the title of the message, Not Forgetting the Gospel. When we forget the gospel, we forget the gospel to our own detriment. When we forget the message of Jesus, when we deny its historical existential reality, we do so to our own demise. The church that was what built many of the institutions of our country and started many of the uh, universities of our culture uh, began to deny the reality of the gospel in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, men and women of this country began to get too smart for the message of resurrection and healings and miracles and signs and wonders. And so because of scientific discovery and a naturalistic view of the world, many of the movers and shakers of the church in the last century decided to deny the central message of the church for all centuries, the message that there was a Jewish carpenter named Jesus. He walked on the earth for 33 years. He performed miracles and signs and wonders and raised the dead and healed the sick and cast out demons and then they put him on a cross and they buried him and then three days later he rose triumphantly from that cross and he went to the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit and the church was born just like we just sang about just a few moments ago. But that message got too outdated in the last century and I believe that we're living in this century with the results of forsaking the gospel in the last century. And many of the churches in the main streets of America, we call them mainline churches because they were the main event churches in this country for over 300 years. They have denied the miraculous. They have denied the supernatural. They have denied the spiritual nature of our faith to their own demise, to their own detriment. And many people 
have seen the failure of those churches for the last hundred years. Let us not be one of those churches. Let us not forget the message of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. And let us never deny that it is the gospel power unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and to the Greek and to the Gentile. Let us not forget that that's why we are here. And Paul says that to the Corinthian church. You know, the Corinthian church was one messed up church. It was one messed up church. The book of Corinthians, which is read oftentimes in weddings, uh, particularly 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, kind, gentle, all that kind of stuff. All right, well, this passage, that Bible passage and passage we just read comes from a book called 1 Corinthians, but it's really not a book, it's a letter. And it's a letter from a guy named Paul. He was a hater of Christianity, an ardent opponent of Jesus and the movement until Jesus found him, changed him, transformed him, put him on a 180-degree turn, and he became an ardent proponent of the church, a messenger of the gospel, a missionary of the highest order. And then he wrote one-third of the New Testament, and they are letters to the churches that he started. He would go from city to city and plant the church, plant the church, and that's what we're doing because that's what we need to do in this country. We need to plant churches. Not just any kind of church, not just uh, white churches or black churches or conservative churches. We need to plant Jesus-centered, gospel-preaching, people-loving churches in every city we could possibly find. And by the way, we're days away, days away from starting our South Coast location, another church to preach the gospel. Now, uh, if this is uh, on your heart to give to that final push... We are absolutely looking for that. So if you can give to the final push, give money to the final push to get South Coast open, now's the time to do it. I know a lot of our big givers are like, I'll do it when you ask me. Well, consider yourself asked. All right, today, put it in the offering box on the way out or give at waterschurch.org slash give today. But anyway, planting church is what Paul did. He would plant the church and then he would move on to another town. And one of the churches that he planted was in Corinth, first century uh, Greek city, uh, now Roman city named Corinth. And that church, when he left, got jacked up. Has anybody ever been to a jacked up church? If you haven't been to one, you just came to one. Just letting you know. Every church is jacked up because we're all being saved. We just talked about that. We're all being saved, okay? This church was messed up. This church had factions and divisions. People saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. It means I only follow that guy, this guy, that guy. And we do that today as a church globally to this day. I follow the Pope. Well, I follow Luther. Well, I follow Calvin. Well, I follow Jacob Arminius. I mean, we, we go through all these, like, people that we think are, are really the truth bearers, and, and we forget that they are just tools in the hand of the truth, Jesus Christ. But anyway... They were divided. They were factional, just like the churches all over the world. They were also very immoral, sexually immoral. They were, they were sleeping with prostitutes on the streets and in the, in the shrine prostitute centers of ancient Rome. And they were, you know, going to church Sunday, but then, but then fornicating on Friday. A, a lot like a lot of single people in the church till this day. Married people, too. I shouldn't, I shouldn't just leave the married people as if they're saints. We all know you guys mess up as well. But anyway, they were doing all that kind of nonsense. They were taking people to court, each other to court. They couldn't resolve their differences. They had to go to the court system of the pagans to, to, to resolve their differences, much like the church is today. We don't, we don't work it out. We don't sort it out. We don't forgive and move on. We, we, we gossip. We slander. We get on Facebook and we post. We do all kinds of things to, to, to demonize our fellow brothers and sisters. And, and for some of you, you got to stop doing that because for some of you, you got to remember that the people that you demonize in the church are the only people going to heaven with you. And just, to, just for kicks, Jesus might put your mansion next to their mansion. Talk about an awkward morning out there. You know what I'm talking about? So they were hating on each other. They were taking each other to court. And they were denying the resurrection. That's the last thing that he talks about here in chapter 15. And I think that when a church denies the resurrection, that church forfeits its right to exist. We're here because Jesus is alive. We're here because he rose and conquered death and hell and the grave. We're here because he holds the keys of hell and death. We're here because he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father except through him. And our purpose as a church is to spread that message. So often that message gets so tainted and so covered up by all the fabrications of men and women who manipulate and distort. And I think that the enemy is always after the message of the gospel. 
Take out your notes if you're, if you're here. Take out your notes in-house. If you're online, go to waterschurch.guide. Not forgetting the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. We already read that passage in verses 1 and 2. I want to give you a quote. It's from William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, from the last part of the, la of the 1800s. Talking about the 1900s and the 1800s, William Booth said, the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell, and Christianity without Christ. I mean, he nailed it. Again, because of the rise of scientific discovery and humanistic naturalism, the church abandoned the central message that made the church the church. The gospel. But today, the gospel is under attack from a different story. Not denying it, but distorting it. The devil will always try to distort the, the gospel, minimize it, get you away from it. Because he knows better than most pastors that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And I got news for everybody who's a Christian. You've been a Christian a long time. Some of you are like, well, I heard the gospel a long time ago and I received it and I've moved on from that. You never move on from the gospel. You got to keep going back to the gospel. You got to go back to baptizing yourself, beating it into your heart that Jesus died for you. You were lost, you were undone, you were a sinner, you were, you were on your way to hell, but the grace of God found you and claimed you and made you his own through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You gotta go back to it. Martin Luther, I mentioned him already, and I, and I appreciate him. He's not my, my guy 100%, but I appreciate his contribution to the church. But he said in the 1500s, you gotta beat the gospel into your head every single day. Because every single day you forget it. You forget you're saved by grace. It leads to pride. It leads to pride and arrogance for the people who think they can obey. And it leads to despair and uh, sadness and depression for those who can't obey. And so the gospel keeps us centered. It keeps us founded. Not on my works, not on what I've done, not on what I did last week, but on what Christ did in history. It's be centered on him. So, let's define the gospel. But I want to do it with five points from a negative point of view, what the gospel is not. And then I got five points of what the gospel is. That's right. I've got ten points. God help you. False gospel number one, the God-shaped whole gospel. Now, some of you believe this. And you got to stop. Well, there was a God-shaped hole inside my heart. There are songs about it. Preachers preach about it. And a lot of you say it. Well, I was just looking for something. I don't know. I had everything else good. My family was good. I had a good job. I had good kids. I was happy. But there was something missing. Let me tell you something. Jesus has never been missing a day in his life. You don't add Jesus to an otherwise com partially complete life. And you can't fit Jesus in your heart anyway. I remember this came to light in my own life when I was leading my children when they were very young, my first two. And one night, very precious moment in my parental life, I sat them down and I explained who Jesus was. And I said, do you want to invite him into your heart? I said that. You want to invite him into, our, into your heart? Oh, yes, Daddy. And we prayed the prayer and invited Jesus into our heart. And then the next day, my son Connor, he's an analytical kid. He said, if Jesus is so big, how does he get in there? It's a good point, Connor. And I went back to the Bible, and I realized that the Bible never, ever says, and some of you are going to be blown away by this, the Bible never, ever says, invite Jesus into your heart. You don't invite Jesus into your heart. You surrender your entire life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's Lord. He's God. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. The Scripture says, nothing that has been made was made apart from Jesus. You can't fit God into a portion of your life, you surrender all of your life to the God who gave you life. It's not the God shape. Well, so it implies, it implies that Jesus was lost. So, and a lot of people, you, you, you uh, verbalize it like this, you say, something was missing, something was missing. Okay. Uh, no, no, you were missing. You were, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why you got to stop saying, I found Jesus. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. He was never lost, you understand. He knew exactly where he was 
every moment. And he's not lost for you. And the idea, again, here it is. It's like you're walking along and everything's fine. And you're like, whoa, what's that? Oh, Jesus. Hello, Jesus. Oh, now I feel better. And this is the problem with that idea as well because then it's also feelings-based. Feelings-based. Young people, listen to me. I, I, I know, I know. Your feelings are, 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 are everything that's true about you. That's what the world tells you. Can I tell you that that's just not true? That's a lie from the pit of hell. What you feel is not real. What you feel will change. You don't even know what you are yet. You don't even know what life is about yet. You can't even vote. So stop thinking you know everything about you because of your feelings. Feelings will lie to you and deceive you. You need the truth that is objective, that is certain, that is grounded in history, that is grounded in a reality that is around you and includes you. But it's not you feeling out the world. It is Christ saving you from your feelings. But if you make it about what you feel in your heart, then you'll give up on the faith when you don't feel it anymore. I can't tell you how many people do that. Well, I don't feel the same anymore. I don't feel it. I mean, I've been through many seasons where I don't feel it. And you're going to go through many Christian seasons, many Christ-following seasons where you don't feel it. Because it's not about feelings, it's about faith. Amen. You think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, on the way into the fire, they were like, I really feel this. I feel this. Feel this. No, they felt the heat. They felt the, 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 the burnings soon to be their death. Okay, they, they came out singing, but they went in being like, oh, God, this is going to hurt. Okay. And then sometimes in life, that's how it is. You feel a little bit disconnected. You feel, but that's the whole in the heart gospel. You got to get away from that. You got to get away from that. There was a great uh, writer from oh, a century previous. He talked about the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul where you're going to go through a season where you just don't feel like God is there. Yes. Great men and women have done that. Even in the Bible, Elijah ran from God. He said, kill me. I'm ready to die. Jeremiah said the same thing. Moses said the same thing. David said the same thing. Many of God's best men and women got to the point where they're like, I don't feel it anymore. Just take my life. And God was like, it's not about what you feel. It's about what I'm doing. In spite of what you feel, this is the good news, by the way, of rejecting the feelings-oriented gospel. Because here's the good news. No matter what you feel, God is doing something real. No matter what you're feeling inside, God is active on the outside. No matter what others think you are, God knows who you are. No matter what your heart is telling you, God's word will always be speaking truth to you. Now, we get this idea of inviting Jesus into our heart from Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. But it doesn't say invite Jesus in your heart. It says let his peace rule there. And the Bible does say in Romans that we have to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. But the Bible also says in 1 John that God is greater than our hearts. It's a wonderful passage. If our hearts condemn us, we know that we still don't have to follow the condemnation that comes from our hearts because God is greater than our hearts. Isn't that good for anybody who showed up and didn't want to feel like they were saved today? They weren't feeling like they should go to church? Like your life should teach you this at some point, that faith is not about feeling. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, he's first in my life. He's the owner of my life. I don't fit God in where I feel empty. I surrender all of my life to God who chooses to put me where he wants me. So you got to get this, man. You got to get this because it's going to set you free. It's going to set you free from the feelings-oriented, whole-in-the-heart gospel. gospel. False gospel number two, the life improvement gospel. Now, this one is popular in churches like ours. I like to think that I'm self-aware enough to understand where Waters Church fits in the global historical movement of Christianity. And where we fit is in the comfortable confines of cool church. Cool church. You know, there's white steeple church in the downtown area. There's marble church. Most of them are Catholic. You know, there's... There's uh, pop church, and then there's, there's cool church. Cool church is when your worship leader wears skinny jeans. <laughs> your pastor wears excessive jewelry sometimes. Bracelets and necklaces. 
I don't have one on today, but usually I do. Because I wear necklaces only when I preach to tell all the teenage kids I'm cooler than you think. That's the only reason why. That's the only reason why. My, you notice I do not wear boot-cut jeans, okay? I'm, I'm keeping up with the kiddos, okay? And that's the only reason. Every other day, I'm in shorts looking like a slob. My wife is like, why don't you put some effort in the house? Well, because it's cool church, you got to look a little cool. got to dress a little cool. got to have cool lights, cool speakers, cool screens. Cool, 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 cool. The problem with the cool church is that the cool church has also started to abandon the gospel for a life improvement gospel. Come and we'll teach you how to have great kids, a great marriage. One, one church in Texas did a whole series, a seven-part series on having great sex. My word, that's, that's fine. I pray your sex life is thrilling with your spouse. But the message of the gospel is not about how to have great sex or great kids or a great spouse or a great house or a great retirement package. The message of the gospel is that Christ died and was buried and rose again. And sometimes life might go poorly for you after you receive the gospel. It might cost you. In fact, Jesus said it's going to cost you. That's why he said count the cost. You want to follow Jesus? Oh, it's easy in America. It's so easy in this country where right now, so far, it's legal. It's somewhat culturally acceptable. For now, that could change tomorrow. Who knows? With the rapid succession of our cultural digression, it could change before I'm done preaching. Someday it's going to cost you dearly to serve Jesus. And all the life improvement people are going to run for the door. Jesus said, you're going to have people hate you because you're my disciple. You're going to have people turn against you. You're going to have difficult relationships. Your father might not appreciate your faith. Your mother, your sister, your spouse, people in your own home, they're going to become your enemies because of me. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide people from their own families because this is what it means to follow Jesus. He's God. He's Lord of all. And so if he's Lord and God, then putting him first is the only appropriate human response. And the rest of the world doesn't get that. The rest of the world is still busy trying to fit God in where they want. A Christian is surrendered heart and soul and mind to who he is. George Barna, a pollster for American churches, says this, to increasing millions of Americans, God, if we even believe in a supernatural deity, exists for the pleasure of humankind. He resides in the heavenly realm solely for our utility and benefit. Although we are too clever to voice it, we live by the notion that true power is accessed not by looking upward, but by turning inward. What a, what a true sentiment of the reality of 21st century Christianity, especially in cool church. I'm not here to tell you how to have great kids. I'm not here to tell you how to have a great marriage. I, I believe that Jesus can help you. I believe he can change you, but, but he helps you. <laughs> he helps you not by changing them, but by changing you. Yes, the problem with your kids is you. Fathers who won't discipline and mothers who won't put their foot down and they'll cater and they'll coddle and they'll wonder why there's snowflakes in college. And Jesus comes and says, stop it. Don't spare the rod. Spank, discipline, say no. It's fun to say no. I'll prove it to you on the count of three. Everybody say it. One, two, three. No. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. My daughter will tell you, just dropped her off at college. She's going to Liberty University. I said, you are not going to any college where they don't know what a woman is. You're not going to any college where they're confused about genders, okay? That crazy is typical of the world detached from God. That's not in the gospel. That's not in the truth of God's word. How did I get on this? Oh, no. So you say no. You're disciplined. That's what God, oh, yeah, there we go. Okay, so God wants to change your marriage by changing you. Don't come and ask me to pray for your husband. I'll pray for you. Submit, respect, honor, 
Well, he's not a Christian. Submit, respect, honor, and win him without words. Oh, the most ignored Bible verse across the spectrum of the female species. <laughs> Why women come to my church? I have no idea. But anyway. <laughs> Husbands, I'm not going to pray for your wife. You love, you respect, you sacrifice. You lay down your life. You don't spend six hours on the golf course and one hour with her. You put your wife first at the pinnacle. She's the only woman in your life. You don't go flirt with the girl at the water cooler. That's a disavow of your vow. You say yes to her every single day. You say yes when she has no makeup on. And she's pulling her hair up because the kids are nasty. And then you get behind her and you discipline the kids. And you put your foot down. So anyway... How did I get here? <laughs> the life improvement gospel. Jesus, fix my things. What happens when they're fixed? Which brings me to gospel number three, false gospel number three, the higher power gospel. And, and this is from AA. And I understand it. Don't come and tell me afterwards, well, AA was founded by a Christian named Bill W. I know. I know it was founded on biblical principles. Just like the university system of this country, but it has been co-opted by secularists, people who deny God. It has been turned into a program that is an infinitum for the day you die. It's now, a, and I find this with recovery people because I meet you all the time, and you get, you move from addiction to alcohol and drugs to addiction to recovery. Now you're addicted to recovery. You're, you're, you're in perpetual recovery, and then they tell you to define yourself by the, by the addiction. I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. Where do you get that messaging? I'm just asking you. I understand that they tell you that. I'm asking you, though, biblically speaking, in Christianese, where do you get that in this book? Where does God tell you to define yourself by your worst sin? You don't define yourself by the bad you did. You define yourself by the righteousness he did. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. I'm a child of the Most High God. I'm a royal priest. I'm a holy nation. Start defining yourself by his definitions and not the world's. And I, by the way, all the recovery people, all the addicts, I got news for you. Your addiction is not the problem. You think it is, but it's not. And this is why, because as soon as you get over the addiction and you only came for the addiction, where are you going to go when the addiction's gone? I call it the bounce back effect. You come because you're addicted, you get a little bit of help, you're not addicted anymore, and you go back out to the world, and then you get addicted again. Then you bounce back to us. Because you're addicted to the recovery. That's not Christianity. Christianity goes deeper than your addiction. God does not say, I really don't like what you're doing. God says, I don't like who you are. I want to change that. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. The heart, your heart. The biggest liar in your life is in your chest. The one who deceives you most, right here. Don't tell me the devil made you do it. You did it. And you did it because you wanted to do it, you stinking little sinner. You're messed up more than you even know. Even the motivations for the good things that you do are messed up. Even the motivations. Do you, do, you, do you do the good things that you do in your life because you want good things to come back to you? My friend, you are a functional Hindu who calls yourself a Christian. It's all about the heart, my friend. The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Which answers the eternal question, what's wrong with me? I don't know. Who can understand your heart? Only God can. The only one who can heal your heart and fix your heart and change your heart is the one who made your heart. And that's what Jesus came to do. Not to deal with your addiction. Your addiction is not the problem. Your heart is the problem. The addiction is the fruit that is tied to the root. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 12, 33, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. The tree is known by its fruit. In other words, God wants to do a deeper work in you than just getting you to stop drinking. Or getting you to stop watching porn. Or getting you to stop shopping endlessly. Or going into debt like crazy. 
He wants to fix what's in here. He wants to solve the true problem. And the true problem is your heart. And he takes your heart out and he puts his heart in. He says in Jeremiah, I will write my laws on their heart so I will cause them to obey me. That's the, an obedience that comes from deep within and is not external for the sake of Christians appreciating me. I obey Christ because he's changed me. He loves me. False gospel number four, the red letter gospel. The red letter gospel. All the college students, pay attention. This is real popular with the young people. Because you're taught in college that there's two gods in the Bible. There's the Old Testament God. He's mean and nasty. You don't want to avoid him. And then Jesus came, and he's kind of like the softer, cuddlier version. And so you don't really need to listen to the whole Bible because, after all, there's some offensive stuff in there. There's some stuff that your culture doesn't appreciate. So don't worry about that. Just focus on the red letters. The red letters are what? The words of Jesus. If you've got a Bible like mine, the words of Jesus are in red. So they make a whole gospel about this. Famous preacher from the last century named Tony Campolo. He started a movement, the red letter movement. And really what they do is they even avoid a lot of the red letters. And they only appreciate the red letters that they like. So isn't it cute, Jesus tells us, to love our enemies. Oh, I like that one. That's good. Let's accept that one. Oh, Jesus tells us to feed the hungry. Yes, you rich capitalistic pigs. Shame on you. Feed the hungry. And, we, and they avoid, they avoid other passages that are also in red. Like, let's do a little test of the red-letter gospel. You think the standards of the Old Testament God were high? Let's look at these red letters in Matthew 5, 48. Jesus saying, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, red-letter gospelites, how are you doing with that one? Anybody got that one nailed? No one. What is Jesus saying then? Are we supposed to avoid that passage? No. He's saying the only standard of righteousness that God accepts is perfection. And you don't got it. And no one does. And until you acknowledge that, you'll never turn to the one who purchased it for you. The red letter gospel. What an anathema. Very popular with the young people. But the old people. I got the next one for you. This is for you. All the old 50 plus. The patriotic gospel. The patriotic. Oh, God and country. My country tis of thee. No, it's not. There, there's no covenantal agreement between God and America in this book. Do you hear me? God only made one covenant with one nation. They're the Israelites, so that's why they're still on the planet. Every nation that was around them is no more in the 3500 B.C. era. Every nation that tried to eliminate them is no more. Every country that curses them is cursed. But with America, there is no covenantal agreement. Now, some of you need to know your history to get away from the patriotic gospel. Get a hold of history. In the last century, there was a cold war between this country and the USSR. The USSR was a secularist, atheistic government. And they mandated atheistic education from age zero to age 100. And they told everybody there is no God, the state is God. And so to differentiate that country, that movement from America, President Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952 decided to put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance of, of, of the United States. And then a few years later, he put in God we trust on the monetary system, the money. Before the 1950s, those things were not part of our country. And so there was a whole generation that grew up thinking that God was pro-America. And that America is a Christian nation. There's no such thing, my friend, as a Christian nation. A lot of people will come and say, where's your flag? Where's the American flag in the church? There's only one flag in our church. It's got the name Jesus on it. It's over there in the parking lot. I mean, in the, in the grassy area. Because there's only one flag worth flying for the people of faith. And it's the name Jesus by which we are saved. 
America is not God's country. I understand. It's been influenced by Christians. Thank God for that. A lot of the freedoms are because of our Christian heritage and the people who had Christian faith who built this country. 100% agree with it. But America is losing all of that, forsaking all of that and running away from it. And they will go the way of all the empires before them into oblivion or irrelevancy. But there's one nation that will stand the test of time. And it's not a white nation or a black nation. And it's not an American nation or a North American nation. It's the nation of people who are bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's the people who follow him and serve him and believe in him. And so our message is not let's take America for God. We're not interested in that. We're here to rescue Americans in Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is who America is. Come out from among them and be different I understand the, church, the country you were raised with is gone. It's gone. It's not coming back. It never will. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is still saving men and women across the world. And your hope is not in the reclaiming of this land, but in the Beulah land of heaven that is yet to come. That's where your focus must be. So those are the false gospels. Let's talk about the real gospel. Are you ready? Five points and then we're done. Number one, understanding the gospel. Christ satisfied the demands of the law. He satisfied the demands of the law. Law places demands on us. Do this. We don't do it. We don't fulfill the law. We can't. None of us can. None of us is perfect. Christ was the only one who was perfect. He was the only good person, by the way. He says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to what? Fulfill. It means I, I came to live the law perfectly. And he did. He never sinned. He asked the Pharisees, Which, where have I sinned? Show me. When they brought him before Pilate in the Sanhedrin right before his crucifixion, no one could provide corroborating evidence that he had broken the law. He was a perfect man. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. And the Bible, by the way, before Christ, is pointing to Christ through the law of the prophets. You've got to read the Bible for what it's about. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's not about making you great. The Bible's about Jesus, who is the great one who humbled himself and made himself nothing so that you could become great in him. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the Bible. So what we do is we life improvement gospel with this. We say, oh, Joseph. Joseph had dreams. And his parents and family hated him, but he held on to his dreams, and one day God made his dreams come true. So we do the life improvement gospel. So I have dreams, and I know not everybody likes my dreams, but I believe if I just hold on to my dreams, God will make my dreams come true. That is the exact wrong way to read the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is this. He was the beloved son of his father. He was elevated by his father to watch over his brothers. When he brought his father's a bad report of what his brother's doing, the brothers hated him and rejected him. And the brothers cast him into a pit and sold him into slavery and wanted to kill him. And he was thrown into a pit, then into a prison, then into the pits, pits of that prison. And in one day, God took Joseph from the prison pit to the palace and put him at the right hand of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. And Joseph wrote letters and sent grain throughout the world and provided food for the nations. That is not your story. That is Jesus' story, who is the precious son of the father, who is brought his father a bad report of what his brothers were doing. And when he brought the report of what they were doing was evil, they hated him and they cast him into a pit of death. But in one day, Jesus raised him from that pit of death and put him at the right-hand side of God the Father. And Jesus Christ now is providing bread for the nations through the word of truth. That's how you read the Bible, my friend. The Bible's not about you. The Bible's about Jesus. And he fulfilled every prophecy and he fulfilled every law for you. And he's the only one who did it. He's the only one who was good. The scriptures say not once, not twice, but three times, there is none who is good. There is none. Everybody take your finger and do this. Not good. This blows away the atheistic, antagonistic argument. Why do bad things happen to good people? The answer is there was only one good person, and he volunteered. His name was Jesus. And he volunteered for you and for me. 
And he fulfilled what we couldn't do. He did what we couldn't do. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the end, the telos, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the good news. This is why the Bible is good news, because it teaches you first the, the problem is you can't do it. The good news is Jesus did for you. And all you need to do is believe. Believe that he lived the life you could not live. Number two, Christ endured the wrath of God. Now, we don't like to talk about wrath, especially as 21st century Christians. Oh, wrath. I don't like, that's a bad state. I don't like wrath. Nobody likes wrath. But we like our own wrath. You just don't like the objective wrath of righteous God. Everybody's got wrath. The man who has been jilted by his wife, who has slept with several other lovers, is rightfully angry at her actions. Wrath. The parent who sees their child destroying their lives is rightfully angry at their child's mistakes. And if, a, if you're a good parent, you're a parent with wrath. If you're a lousy parent, you're always saying, well, I love them anyway. That's lousy parenting. Lousy parenting gets angry at their children's mistakes. You set boundaries. You set rules. When your child is destroying themselves, you yell. You stop. And the children, when they're little children, you yell. You see your child running into traffic, running into the street, and you see a car. You don't say, well, I love him. It's important that he knows that I love him. Don't do it, Johnny. I love you. He doesn't give a rip about your love. He's playing in traffic. When the kid runs to traffic, you don't love, you yell. Stop it. And if they don't listen, every good parent will do this if necessary. They will run into traffic, push the child out of the way, and take the semi-truck themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross 2,000 years ago. He pushed you out of the way, and he took the wrath of God so that you don't have to face it. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're not good. He was good, and Christ bore our sin on the tree. 1 Peter 2, 24. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's the gospel. The gospel is he bore the wrath of God for your and my sin. Number three, Christ is the final sacrifice for sin. All throughout the Old Testament, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Adam and Eve, sin in the garden. And some of you got to pick up on the nuances of the text because it says as soon as they sinned, they knew they were naked and they went and hid themselves and they started to sow fig leaves to cover themselves. And the scripture says that God comes and shows up and he finds them because they were lost, he wasn't. He finds them and he kills an animal and uses the animal skins to cover them. By the way, that's what we do still to this day. And everybody with a leather jacket said, amen. <laughs> so this is what Christ is. He's the final sacrifice, the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And every sacrifice had to be pure, undefiled, firstborn. Pure, undefiled, spotless, firstborn. And when Jesus walks across by the Jordan River in front of John the Baptist, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus died in A.D. 33, and 17 years later, the Roman army, 27 years later, the Roman army came in to Jerusalem and sacked the temple, destroyed it, and burned it to the ground, and eliminated the sacrificial system. History itself testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was once and for all, done, paid in full. That means that you don't have to make up for your sins before God. Isn't that good? That means that there is no purgatory. That means that when you die, no matter how stinking rotten you have been, faith in Jesus Christ washes away every spot of sin forever. That's why Jesus could say to the, sin, the sinner, the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't tell him, well, you're going to go to a place for a while, and we're going to purge you of all your sins, and some of your living ancestors are going to pay the church to get you out sooner. That's not the truth of the gospel. The gospel is once saved with one sacrifice for all time. 
Hebrews 10:12 says, when Christ had offered a sacrifice for all time, he sat down at the right-hand side of God the Father. Number four, Christ ransomed us from, uh, to God. Ransom, it's a payment. You had to be paid for. You had to be paid for. There's a reality of our lives that when somebody hurts us, we immediately say, I'll forgive them, but they have to make up for it. It's amazing how we have that standard for ourselves, but not before God. Christ paid for our sins. He, he ransomed us, bought us back. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. There was a story of a young boy who was a teenager. He worked on a little boat, a little model boat. He loved his boat. And to test it out one day, he brought it down to the river. And he put the boat in the river, and the current came and took the boat away, and it was gone before he knew what to do. And he loved that boat, and he lost the boat, the boat that he had made. And years later, as an adult, he was walking through a thrift store, and wouldn't you know, on the shelf of the thrift store, he saw his boat. And without hesitation, he took out his wallet, and he paid for the boat. And he loved the boat so much, he brought it home and he spoke to the boat. And he said, little boat, you are now twice mine. The first time I made you, the second time I paid for you. That's who you are. Not just made by God, but paid for by God. That's how precious you are before the Father in Jesus Christ. And number five, and, five, and finally, <clears throat> Christ rose in triumph over death. Which is the argument that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, this is not true. We all got better things to do. If the gospel is not true, if the resurrection is not a reality, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In fact, he also says, if there is no resurrection, then Christians are the most pitiful people on the planet. No, there is a resurrection. There is a new life coming. There is a new dawn, a new age that is dawning in the resurrection reality of Jesus Christ. Romans 6 verse 9 says, we know Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Not perfect. Not sinless. Saved. Being saved. And one day, being raised. This is the good news for all the old people. See, the older you get, the more you appreciate the resurrection. Because your body is teaching you something every day, isn't it? Old people among us. The joints aren't working like they used to, are they? You don't run anymore, do you? You don't run anywhere. When you stand up, you grunt. You get a little bit older. When you sit down, you grunt. Your body is going down. Everything's heading down. Your arms start to sag. Your body starts to droop. Your body finally says to you, I've had enough of this battle with gravity. I'm heading down. <laughs> you men can see it on the top of your head. You used to have a wave, now you have a beach. <laughs> you don't actually lose hair, it just relocates to the southernmost regions of your body. With every wrinkle you see in the mirror in the morning is a reminder that this body is temporary and is headed down to the ground. It heads down because eventually you're going down there with it. And if you're in Christ Jesus, that's the closest you're ever going to get to hell. But if you're not in Christ Jesus, this is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. And the good news is that if our bodies are buried with Christ, they will rise with Him at the last day. I've got a resurrection body coming my way. And it never gets old, and it never gets tired, and it never gets weary. Oh, I'm excited about that one. The older you get, the, the more you like that idea. And that's the only way it works, my friends. This is the only gospel. This is the only message that saves. This is the only one. And everyone in life is making an eternal wager over their eternal they're going with Christ or you're not. There's no other option. There's none. A couple of days ago, my wife was in Peru with my oldest son. 
And I was alone with my youngest son. He's 10 years old. He's always making a bargain with me. And uh, mom's not there to cook, so I can't cook, so we're going out to dinner. So we went to the chicken place, and I bought him some chicken nuggets, 12-piece chicken nuggets. And I said, I'll have four. He'll have eight. I said, I said Jake, uh, here's the deal. If you eat all eight of your chicken nuggets, I will buy you a milkshake. Oh, sounds good, Dad. He got through four chicken nuggets. He said, Dad, I got an idea. Let's do four. Four nuggets, milkshake. I said, no. The deal is eight. Four, Dad. Eight. Four. Eight. No. Back and forth. We talk about other things. Coming back. How about four? No. Talk about other things. How about four, Dad? I mean, you don't let it die. I got so exhausted by this kid's negotiation. I said, Jake, you have my permission to make whatever agreement over the chicken nuggets that you want with yourself. But you have no money. You have no power to buy yourself a milkshake. Dad's got all the money. So it's eight or nothing. I feel like I have to say that to Americans all the time. You Americans, always negotiating, always saying, well, I, I just believe that God just, you know, he's, he's going to accept me as I am. That's what he is. That's how I think he is. I think all religions lead to the Father. I think God, oh, God acknowledges all religions. They're all equal. I think God was just going to look at my heart. He's going to say, good enough. No. He looks at your heart, and he says, deceitful above all else, desperately sick, and unrighteous. And all religions do lead to the same place. Just not the place you think. This is not about religion. This is about a message, the message that saves. So, dear America, you have God's permission to make whatever agreement about eternal life that you want with yourself. But you have no power to raise your body from the dead. There's one man that was sent from God who lived a perfect life and died an unjust death and was raised to life on the third day. And he made one agreement with all of mankind. And the agreement is so simple. Believe in the one that God has sent and you will have eternal life. That's the story of the gospel and that's what changes you and changes me. I want you to stand up right where you are. And I want you to bow your heads across this room. Close your eyes for a moment because today some of you need to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I'm not talking about being a good person. I'm talking about surrendering your life to the only good person there ever was. Saying, yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, I deserve judgment. But I accept the grace of God through Jesus Christ, His Son. And this is your day to do it. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you say this prayer after me? The prayer doesn't save you. It's not mystical. It's just giving you words to confess what you have come to believe in your heart. So right where you are, if that's you, say these words after me. I'm going to guide you in a confession of faith. And if you know you need Christ Jesus, you say them with me. Say, Heavenly Father, today I repent of my sins. Forgive me through Jesus Christ, your Son. Today I surrender my life to Him. Have your way with me. I give you my life in Jesus' name.